The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Starting any podcast, no matter the genre, requires dedication. But for true crime especially, research is the most essential ingredient. An excellent true crime podcast requires a great deal of investigation to tell a compelling story, which listeners like you deserve. Our goal is to take you deep into the inner minds of the players, from murderers to witnesses to the victims themselves, to get the most exciting information. We must not only dig deep below the surface to find new stories, court dockets, and case files, but we seek to conduct our own interviews with as many witnesses as possible to paint as accurate of a picture of the case that the victims deserve. For a good episode, we need first to uncover the details of the crime, including the what, when, where, why, and who, and all the elements that make the crime unique. As we unravel the crime in such a way that reads like a good mystery novel, with twists and turns that keep you as listeners hooked until the end, it is the who that matters most. That human element that draws us in and provides a common connection allowing us all to relate. So as we dig into these files and uncover as many names as possible, our skilled researchers then do their utmost to track down the voices and stories behind those names. Now we all love a good true crime story, but most of us, for good reason, prefer that unfortunate story to have occurred afar. Nearly no one wants that story to hit too close to home, because if it does, it might be your phone you find ringing, with one of our highly talented researchers on the other end to greet you. And there is no denying that the immediate response we often get is, how did you find my number? In this day and age, almost anyone can be found online because your private information is no longer private. In today's world, the risk of being tracked online is a significant concern. Anyone, like a coworker, a new online date, or even a stranger can pose a threat if they gain access to your personal information. Your personal information is already exposed whether you like it or not. In fact, the average person, including you, will have over 2,400 pieces of personal information exposed online over the next two years. Your online reputation is everything, and 40% of information data brokers have on 
some people is inaccurate. This could mean lost job opportunities, higher insurance premiums, or even wrongful arrest. And after hearing our podcast, we all know this could lead to something much darker. And everyone knows that is not a risk you should be willing to take. But did you know there is a legit way to make your personal data yours again? Spooner for Gothic has partnered with number one personal data removal service, Delete Me. Since 2011, Delete Me has made it quick, easy, and safe for listeners like you to remove your personal data online. But how does Delete Me work? Well, it's quick and easy. You just sign up at joindeleteme.com backslash Spoon River and submit your personal information for removal from search engines. Next, the removal process begins as Delete Me experts find and remove your personal information, and you will then receive a detailed Delete Me report within seven days. And that's not it. Delete Me experts will continue to scan and delete any detected personal information every three months throughout the year. Since 2011, Delete Me has saved users over 54 years. That's 20,000 hours of required effort to remove personal information from online sources. Delete Me has developed the most comprehensive, thorough, and transparent information removal product on the market. And that is why PCMag.com named Delete Me Excellent, the most outstanding product in its category. With an average rating of 4.7 out of 5 stars, Delete Me has over 800 plus reviews and an A-plus rating by the Better Business Bureau. So know that you can trust this industry leader in online personal data removal. Also, the Delete Me team is always there to help you and prides itself on its outstanding customer service and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. The Delete Me team is not happy if you're not happy. Your privacy is their business. So join Delete Me now. Now, risk-free at joindeleteme.com backslash Spoon River because no one wants to be a victim or a suspect. So get protected before it's too late. And next time that case hits too close to home, you will not find yourself asking that strange person on the other end of the line, how did you find my number? Again, that's joindeleteme.com backslash Spoon River. Chapter 60, The People vs. Bull, Part 1, Dead Man Walking Give him five bucks and tell him to go see Dead Man Walking, State Prosecutor Edward Parkinson on the defense's motion to provide Donald Bull with a forensic social worker to assist Donnie Bull in navigating not only the impending trial, but the death penalty phase and the greater criminal justice system from here on out. A frustrated Parkinson continued in response to the motion, saying, When we get to the death penalty stage, we are not looking for someone to hold his hand and to come here and preach to us about the psychological makeup of these persons. It's did he do it or didn't he? A stall tactic to get more money spent on this case or delay the trial. I don't know what their investigators could possibly uncover anymore. I just don't know what a forensic social worker is. So do we oppose it? I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, as you are already aware, the Donald Bull trial had been moved to Hancock County due to excessive and potentially prejudicing media coverage of the case. In particular, the people of the state of Illinois versus Donald Bull was relocated to the county seat of Carthage, a small city with a population of 2,590 back in March of 96. While Carthage has a history of vigilant justice, the only person legally hanged in Hancock County, a man named Ephraim Frame, 
have been defended in this trial by Roman County Attorney Abraham Lincoln. Frame was found guilty of murder. Lincoln filed an appeal with the judge in the trial, which was as far as most appeals in those days went. Because Carthage had no jail, Frame was kept at the courthouse next to the school. Frame conversed with the children from his second floor window, and as a result of those conversations, most of the school children were present when their new friend, Ephraim, was hanged. The hanging is believed to have occurred near the current city's sewer plant east of town, where a natural amphitheater allowed a crowd to view the spectacle. Carthage is best known for being the site of the 1844 death of Joseph Smith, who founded the Latter-day Saint movement, better known simply as the Mormon Church. While incarcerated in the Carthage jail in June 1844, Joseph Smith and his brother, Hiram Smith, were killed by a mob on Thursday, June 27, 1844. Over the years, the jail has been restored to a close approximation of its appearance in 1844 and is now owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Notably, Carthage is the only city in Illinois to have all the jails that it has ever used still in existence. The old jail, now called the Mormon Jail, the jail built next, which was also the sheriff's residence on the south side of the courthouse square, and the new jail, which is on Highway 136 in the city's west side. The Hancock County Courthouse in Carthage was built in 1908 and is the third courthouse for the county. It is at the center of the square in Carthage and has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places since 1986. On March 25, 1996, at the Hancock County Courthouse, as the Donald R. Bull double murder trial began, the trial by media continued its course, with the Pura Journal Star stating, The murder of a young woman and her daughter in Canton three years ago was the end result of a sexual assault and a failed romance, a prosecutor told jurors in the Donald Bull Jr. trial Monday. Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner said Bull, who may face the death penalty if convicted of the January 1993 deaths of Donald Tompkins 30 and her daughter Justine 3, killed the victims after the elder Tompkins ended a short sexual relationship with him, but also sexually assaulted the woman, the prosecutor said. Monday's opening statement in the murder trial marked the first time prosecutors mentioned sexual assault in the case. DNA evidence, the prosecutor said, will back up the sex assault theory. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if I might interject and question the paradox of the foundation of the state's case. Ed Danner states that Donnie and Donna, in fact, did have a short-lived sexual relationship while at the same time suggesting that DNA evidence of such a sexual encounter somehow proves their sex assault argument theory, which in my mind does not hold water. If anything, the DNA should prove that Donnie and Donna did, in fact, have a sexual relationship. But what else, ladies and gentlemen, does this prove? Little to nothing more. I find it odd this contradiction, somehow, should serve as the solid foundation for their case. Seen in certain terms, it appears to disqualify their very sexual assault theory. Moving along. Defense attorneys said police and prosecutors have focused their attention on the wrong man, and should instead look at the co-worker of Tompkins, who was at the crime scene after the fire was supposedly set. But Danner told the jury the forensic evidence he plans to present will show that the Tompkins were dead before the fire, indicating murder, stating, if these people were dead before the fire occurred, there had to be someone else who set the fire, asking, how do you set a fire when you're dead? Danner then pointed to Bull as the only possible suspect in the case, 
noting that Bull had told acquaintances that he had had sexual relations with Donna at least once. Again, ladies and gentlemen, a paradox in plain sight. But defense attorney Alyssa McMillan said the state was overlooking David Haynes, a trust officer at the National Bank who should be the prime suspect. She noted that several people in and near the house between 9 and 9.30 a.m. on January 13th did not see a fire. Haynes, McMillan said, also told authorities he didn't see a fire when he approached the house that morning, even though he looked through the windows and still minutes later Haynes told police he spotted smoke and turned in an alarm at about 9.30 a.m. McMillan also raised questions about a window about a window Haynes had broken so he could unlock the door. The defense attorney said she would introduce evidence indicating the window was broken before the fire. Furthermore, McMillan said Haynes' statement to police that he entered the apartment must be wrong since Haynes would have had to have been standing in the middle of the fire as he entered. David Haynes is not someone you would expect to be charged in murder, she said. That's why they had to put aside the evidence against Haynes and divert it to Bull. March 28th, tearful man recounts last contact with wife, child. Witness says he passed out when family told him of the fatalities. The Journal Star article goes on to state, Carthage, a little more than three years ago, John Tompkins was working at his parents' farm and planning an evening dinner at McDonald's with his three-year-old daughter. Then his parents and brother approached and told him that there had been an accident at his estranged wife's apartment and that the coroner had been called. I passed out, he said. When I heard those words, I knew one or both of them were gone. Tompkins took the stand on Wednesday, the third day of testimony in the murder trial of Donald Bull Jr. John Tompkins, who lives in Cuba, cries at times as he testified that he last saw his estranged wife and daughter on January 10, 1993, when he dropped Justine off after the girl spent a night with him. He said that he and Donna Tompkins separated in April of 1992 and that he frequently took Justine out to spend time together. Tompkins said he spoke to both on the telephone on January 11th and again to Donna on January 12th. It was about 11 a.m. January 13th when his family approached him while he worked in a barn almost an hour and a half after the fire was reported at Donna Tompkins' apartment at 365 South First Avenue. I've never had all three of them come out there like that, he said. Tompkins then said on the stand, the expressions on their face were pretty vacant and pale. Then my dad told me I needed to be strong now more than ever and I thought that was odd since I was grinding feed. When he learned the news, Tompkins said he could only think to ask which hospital they had been taken to. No one would answer me, he said. Mom just mentioned to me that the coroner had been called in. Tompkins testified Wednesday that he had given blood and fingerprint samples to police during their investigation into the deaths. Upon cross-examination, he said that he had to provide a second blood sample because an error had been made in drawing the first one. He also identified some of his wife's personal belongings, as well as family photographs and jewelry that his wife wore in some of the photographs. But defense attorney Alyssa McMillan was stymied in her attempts to find out about Donna Tompkins' relationship with her boss, David Haynes, the man the defense had pointed to as a possible suspect in the deaths. Judge William Henderson sustained a prosecution objection to that line of questioning by McMillan. The state also began laying the groundwork for its arson case, 
calling several witnesses who testified that pieces of wood and other building materials had been taken from the apartment that had traces of gasoline and other accelerants on them. March 29th. Victims were dead before fire. Witness pathologist says asphyxiation is most likely cause of death for mother-daughter. The Journal Star article says, Carthage. Fire and medical investigators on Thursday led a jury through the last moments of Donna Tompkins' life and the beginnings of the blaze that consumed her and her three-year-old daughter. However, a pathologist testifying on the fourth day of Donald Bull's double murder trial emphasized that Don and Justine were dead before the fire began. John Murphy, a pathologist at Memorial Medical Center in Springfield, testified that although the Tompkins bodies were covered in severe burns, their internal organs showed no signs of soot or pigments typically seen in people who inhale smoke and die in a fire. Since the two were not killed by fire or smoke, Murphy said, he looked for other causes of death, including disease, and gunshot and stabbing wounds, but found no evidence of any of those. There's no question in my mind that both the adult and child were dead before the fire, he said. The most likely cause is foul play. The most likely form of foul play, asphyxiation. But Murphy said he couldn't be absolutely certain the two had been strangled or smothered since asphyxiation leaves behind evidence such as hemorrhages and bruises that would have been destroyed when the bodies were burned. Under cross-examination by defense attorney Dean Stone, Murphy said that he had not found any signs of internal hemorrhaging or cartilage damage that might result from strangling, but that would have survived the fire. However, under further questioning by prosecutor Edward Parkinson, he noted that had Donna and Justine Tompkins been smothered by a pillow or hand, there would have been no such signs and that any fibers left behind by smothering most likely would have been burned in the fire. Furthermore, he said, his examination of Donna Tompkins' body revealed sperm and traces of alcohol. Murphy said that sperm usually breaks down within 72 hours after sexual intercourse. Therefore, since the autopsy was performed on January 14th, that means Tompkins had intercourse sometime after January 11th, the pathologist said. Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner has said that he will link Bull to that sperm using DNA evidence. The pathologist also said he could tell Donna Tompkins had consumed alcohol within 90 minutes of her death because alcohol levels in her blood were the same as that of the liquid in her eyes. He said the eye liquid, called virtuous humor, usually rises to a higher alcohol level than the blood after alcohol has been in the body for 90 minutes. Canton Fire Department arson investigator John Stanko testified that he was convinced the fire that consumed the bodies and destroyed the apartment at 365 South First was arson. He said he reached that conclusion after he found burn patterns that indicated some form of accelerant, such as gasoline, had been poured on the floor. Also, he said the fire burned downward into the carpet and cracks of the floor, not upward as fire normally does. That, the investigator said, indicates some form of accelerant had soaked into the carpet and cracks. March 30th. Testimony turns testy in bull trial. Witness forgets what he said. Peoria Journal Star. Carthage. A witness forgot his testimony moments after giving it, and a defense attorney was cut short in her attempts to question the man she claimed should be charged with the murder. 
and attorneys accused each other of misbehavior on the fifth day of testimony in the Donald Bull Jr. murder trial. On Friday, David Nell, a friend of Bull's, testified that he and Bull cruised through town in the early morning hours of January 13th before Bull took Nell home. Nell said that twice during the drive, Bull pointed to Tompkins' apartment and indicated that he would like to have sex with Tompkins. However, when cross-examined by defense attorney Dean Stone, Nell said he did not tell authorities about the ride when he was questioned twice in March of 1993. Questioned again by Fulton County State's attorney Ed Danner on Friday, Nell said he couldn't remember what happened. Stone tried to question Nell about an interview he conducted with Nell in July of 1995 in which Nell reportedly said he told police whatever they wanted to hear. But Judge William Henderson would not allow that testimony in front of the jury. Ladies and gentlemen, I only have one word. Why? And when Danner tried to question Nell about his testimony before a grand jury in 1994, Stone objected, saying if the grand jury testimony were to be admitted, so should the disputed interview testimony. The defense has maintained manipulation of evidence by law enforcement authorities to railroad Mr. Bull, said Stone. We believe that information should not be hidden, but Prosecutor Edward Parkinson said he and Danner would never allow coerced testimony and countered that Stone's material had never been mentioned until Friday. All of a sudden to hear this garbage from the witness stand, we do not need this, said Parkinson. Stone is not going to turn this into a circus, and this is what he is trying to do. Nell is to take the stand again on Monday after the judge considers what lines of questioning he will allow. Earlier in the day, workers at the National Bank of Canton, where Tompkins worked, testified that they first noticed Donna Tompkins was missing the morning of January 13th when she failed to come to work at 8 a.m. David Haynes, Tompkins' direct supervisor, said he went to Tompkins' apartment about 9.15 a.m. that day after Tompkins had not shown up, calls to her apartment went unanswered, and Justine Tompkins had not arrived at daycare. Haynes recounted how he knocked on Tompkins' door and then went to the landlady's apartment to see if she had a key. After determining there was no key available, Haynes said he removed a window air conditioner and was surprised when smoke came billowing out. It seemed incredible to me that there was so much smoke, and I hadn't noticed, he said. Haynes said he then broke open the door but was pushed out by the heat. Every ounce of energy I had in my body was trying to see Donna and Justine, Haynes said. But I don't recall seeing any walls or ceilings. I could just see smoke. Haynes was named by a defense attorney, Alyssa McMillan, in her opening argument as the man investigators should investigate as the prime suspect. However, when she attempted to cross-examine him about the dealings with police that day, she was prevented by a prosecution objection. McMillan was only able to ask a handful of questions of Haynes before Haynes was excused. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may, this is number two, twice now. Judge Henderson has prevented Donnie's defense from thoroughly questioning state's witnesses. However, if she were allowed to follow through with her cross-examination of David, might she have arrived at the question, is it true that you were the initial suspect, is it not? And seeing police had conducted a search on Mr. Bull's home, once he had appeared on the radar as a suspect himself, had the police asked to search the back of your truck? Questions to consider, ladies and gentlemen. Any word, why? Or rather, why not? What was there to lose? Or rather, what was there to hide? Mr. Haynes, do you carry a gas can in the back of your truck? hidden beneath your camper shell?
April 2nd, inmate testifies to confession by Bull. Defendant snapped after being slapped, man says Bull told him. Peoria Journal Star, Carthage. One slap was all it took to send Donald Bull Jr. into a blind rage. When he awoke from that rage, Donna Tompkins was dead under his hand, and all that was left to do was for Bull to kill her three-year-old daughter. And like that, ladies and gentlemen, the convicting words of a jailhouse snitch who had received immunity in exchange for his testimony appeared in headlines across central Illinois. Chris Chester of Canton, serving a three-year prison term for forgery, testified in Bull's double murder trial Monday that Bull told him all about the January 13, 1993 killings in a prison conversation. She slapped him, and he came to on top of her with his hands on her face, said Chester. He said she was dead, then he heard her, and he said he did the same thing to her. Chester was prevented from saying the confession occurred in prison. For one, defense attorneys did not want to prejudice jury members by making them aware that Bull was currently serving a prison sentence for a different crime. And the prosecution, if I might submit to you, was equally concerned that stating the confession occurred in prison might discredit or impeach the witness, Chris Chester, as nothing more than a jailhouse snitch. Also Monday, a battery of witnesses testified as to the whereabouts of the Tompkins and Bull in the days leading up to the deaths. Several witnesses who had been at a party on January 12, 1993 at the house Bull shared with his then-girlfriend Rochelle Hillmeyer testified Bull left the house early on January 13th to drive a friend home and didn't return until about 9.30 a.m. The fire in the Tompkins residence was reported shortly after 9.30 a.m. David Nell testified for the second time that Bull drove him home that morning. During that drive, Bull twice pointed at Donna Tompkins' home and mentioned that he would like to have sex with her, Nell said. Nell gave this same testimony Friday, but then said under further questioning that he could not remember what happened that morning because it was a long time ago. After more questioning from Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner Monday, Nell confirmed his initial testimony Friday was accurate. Hillemeyer testified that Bull borrowed her car about 2 a.m. that morning and didn't return until about 9.30 a.m. She said Bull told her he hurt his leg trying to fix a flat tire on the car. He also told her he fell asleep in the car and took the flat tire to a garage after he awoke. She said Bull told her the red stains on his jacket were from his leg injury. However, she checked Bull's leg and found no broken skin. Hillmeyer said Bull then told her the stains were transmission fluid. Ladies and gentlemen, there have been discrepancies about the exact time Donnie took David Neal home that night. Still, the general consensus was that they had left the house sometime between 2 and 3 a.m., drove around town for a while, stopped for a pack of smokes, and then had another beer or two in David Neal's driveway before Donnie left for home. Given these activities would have taken a good chunk of time, and adding to the equation that according to the pathologist who examined Donna, she would have had to have had her last drink within an hour of her death, this would equate such. Donna would have had to have been up drinking around 3, 4, or 5 a.m. during those wee hours in the morning just before sunrise, when she would have had to been getting ready for work, leaving early to perform her duties picking up the cash drops at the Chestnut Street ATM, and to arrive at work bright-eyed and bushy-tailed by 8 a.m. Many people who knew Donna well did not feel this was very likely, given how responsible Donna was as an employer, mother, and general human being. If Donna had been drinking on a work night, and as we know from Rod Franciscovich's testimony, in which he spoke with Donna on the phone that night at around 10pm, she mentioned that she was having a drink, schnapps with a splash of cider. 
And according to pathologist Dr. Murphy, Donna had a blood alcohol content of 0.056 at the time of her death. This would suggest, mathematically speaking, that time of death would have most likely occurred sometime between midnight and 1am, but no later. Which certainly does not fit into the timeline of when Donnie could possibly have arrived at her house, as it was not until hours later, in those early morning hours before sunrise, just before Donna would have had to have gotten out of bed, driven Justine to daycare, picked up the ATM drop, and still somewhat intoxicated, arrived to work to perform a long day of duties as secretary to the trust officer, David Haynes. Also, fire investigators determined that the fire had to have been set at around 9.15 a.m. that morning, 9.30 at the latest. Jeff Bennett, manager of a local gas station, said that Donnie was at the gas station drinking coffee with him for at least an hour, from approximately 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. And ladies and gentlemen, I need to ask, what does bending a timeline to fit a preferred 30 amount to? If you remember, it is called inductive reasoning. Creating a subjective theory and working backward through the evidence toward that theory, forcing the evidence to fit said preferred conclusion. Rather than deductive reasoning, in which all that is not possible is eliminated, leaving what evidence is possible and allowing only what evidence is possible to point to an objective theory. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. As far as the opposite, courtroom jargon for inductive reasoning, railroading. Rod Franciscovich, who typically arrived at her home sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. after getting off work, would crawl into bed with Donna, who was already sleeping, and spend the night with her. He testified that he last saw Donna the morning of January 12th after such a night, when she awoke him to give him a spare key before she had left for work, leaving Rod to sleep in a while longer, alone in her home, and that he had spoken to her on the phone that evening when she mentioned that she had just enjoyed a quick nap with Justine and was now savoring a glass of schnapps with a splash of cider. Franciscovich testified he and Tompkins had sexual relations on January 12th and that Tompkins had applied a spermicide gel to herself in preparation for that, but under testimony he said no intercourse had occurred. Ladies and gentlemen, if I might once again, the statement that Donna and Rod had not had intercourse on the night of January 12th is untrue at least according to a prior statement he had made to police. The testimony is false if you take that interview into account, considering the fact that Rod stated that he and Donna had had intercourse that night, but that he did not ejaculate inside of her vagina, but instead inside of her mouth. This discrepancy, this change of story, seemed to slide through the cracks on Monday during testimony. And the article continues that autopsy examiners found sperm in Tompkins' body, and that Danner promised to link that sperm not to Franciscovich, but the bull using DNA evidence. Harold Crozer of Duncan Mills also testified Monday that Bull told him he had had sex with Tompkins after the men viewed a television show about DNA evidence. Ladies and gentlemen, let us remember that Crozer, prison house frequent flyer, had provided the state this testimony also in exchange for immunity. Crozer said that Bull was concerned over what link could be drawn between him and Tompkins using DNA evidence. On April 21st, Donnie's defense filed a motion for mistrial, 
claiming that despite the court entering a motion preventing the prosecution from mentioning, using, or utilizing in any manner any alleged prior bad act of the defendant, that on March 25th, the prosecution deliberately violated the court's order by asking its own witness, David Nell, on direct examination whether Donnie Bull had smoked marijuana on the evening of January 12th, 1993, or during the early morning hours of January 13th. Also, the question was objected to by the defense, as David Nell answered something to the effect of three joints. And the court sustained that objection by the defense and instructed the jury to disregard David Nell's answer. However, the defense claimed that regardless, prejudice had occurred and thus prevented Donnie from having a fair and impartial jury in determining his guilt or innocence of the charges against him. On that same day in April, the defense entered a motion to prevent the introduction of DNA evidence stating that a different testing method standard and gel had been used during analysis of Rod Franciscovich, Terry Haynes, John Tompkins, and Donna Tompkins by state analyst David Metzger than he had used for Donnie, and that, in fact, the standard used to compare Donnie's DNA with that found during Donna Tompkins' autopsy was through a method not accepted in the scientific community stating that based on the methods used by the state's witness David Metzger in testing, the reliability of testing was highly questionable and that the witness should not be able to testify before the jury the probabilities that he calculated, as he would essentially be misleading the jury. The defense then entered another motion for mistrial, stating that when the counsel for the defendant, mainly Alyssa McMillan, attempted to cross-examine a key witness, David Haynes, and question him about prior inconsistent statements, some of which he had just made during direct examination by the state, the state objected. And though the defense argued that cross-examination of David Haynes concerning previous inconsistent statements made to various law enforcement officers was relevant, the court sustained the state's objection stating it was beyond the scope of direct examination, preventing the defense from effectively cross-examining the key witness. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may lay another question upon you. How was questioning the initial prime suspect of the double homicide of Donna and Justine Tompkins irrelevant? After all, David Haynes was the only person to be proven to be physically present at the crime scene that day of January 13, 1993. And one would think his barrage of conflicting statements and changed stories would certainly be within scope of direct examination, especially seeing that most of the justification for the state's case against Donnie Bull was that he had changed his accounts of events, essentially changing his story. And yes, it is true, Donnie had changed his account of where the flat tire on his car had occurred. However, likewise, David changed his story significantly but his actions at the actual crime scene as he stood before the fire that had, in effect, been in the act of consuming not only the bodies of the victims, but any evidence that might prove if anyone else had actually been physically present in Donna's apartment early that morning. The defense went on to state that the court's ruling further shifted the burden of proof in the case by requiring the defense to offer proof rather than elicit information through proper cross-examination thereby denying Donnie, again, of a fair and impartial trial, essentially violating his Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights as guaranteed by the United States Constitution. Again, ladies and gentlemen, remember that it is the burden of the state to provide evidence and proof and exceed a reasonable doubt. It is not the burden of Donnie nor his defense.
the motion concluded by asking the court to have the witness David Haynes recalled to the stand to permit the defense to conduct a proper, complete, and thorough cross-examination of the witness, pursuant to Illinois Supreme Court Rule 238. The court denied all motions. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may have your attention for one moment as I introduce Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, a thrill ride fueled by murder and terror, the motive of this cross-country killing spree at its heart, storytelling. And though this horrid crime is true, the story was birthed by imagination, as those people, the players involved, created their own characters and then took to the road to not only discover, but rain down upon their preferred setting. Then, through one unspeakable vile act after another, these characters wrote a story, an adventure only these characters could have dreamt of. Set free in a world where destiny quickly took one expected turn after the next, an absorbing tale of two individuals whose paths seemed destined never to cross, yet had. Meet 18-year-old honor student Lisa Dunn, whose seemingly idyllic life and background were undoubtedly worlds apart from 28-year-old self-proclaimed bad boy Daniel Eugene Remetta, a product of a turbulent, neglectful, and abusive upbringing who found himself on a collision course with the criminal underworld from a young age. Growing up in the shadow of alcoholism, a childhood marked by habitual encounters with law enforcement, Danny's life was marred by violence and chaos from the start. In stark contrast, Lisa Dunn's life was on a trajectory toward college and a promising future. Until shortly before their fateful meeting, she embodied a well-cared-for, academically successful teenager from a loving and well-to-do middle-class home. But then, suddenly her grades slipped. She experimented with drugs and even ran away from home to Florida, signaling her growing discomfort with the life that had been assigned to her. And when Lisa and Danny's past crossed, it was at that crossroads, that crosshair in life, that caused an abrupt turn into not only uncharted territory, but terror. At Radio Verte, we aim to unravel this captivating tale of how these two vastly different individuals came together. We will deeply explore the intricate dynamics that led to a cross-country, multi-state killing spree, one marked and dog-eared for all time by early-onset mass murder, in a time of social change just at that dawn when murderous violence would spill out across the nation. 
As we delve into the narrative, we'll grapple with the haunting question, who was manipulating who? Who transitioned into an active accomplice? And with the complex interplay of Danny and Lisa's conflicting backgrounds and terrible choices, along with the influence of consequential figures like former altar boy turned cold-blooded killer, tag-along Mark Walter, and hitchhiking Vietnam vet J.C. Catfish Hunter. Just what sociopathic crimes would transpire. Follow along with Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, as we present a compelling true crime road saga that will challenge your understanding of human capacity for both darkness and redemption. Coming February 2024, wherever you get your podcasts.